And just a quick review before we get into our study today. Last Sabbath, our message was entitled, The Not-So-New Testament Church, and tried to demonstrate from the Bible that what happened in the book of Acts, this launching of the New Testament church, is actually just the continuation of the Old Testament. In fact, it should just be the Testament. Uh, It's all centered on Jesus Christ, and he's still currently doing things for us and will soon come again. And Acts chapter 1 is just simply the continuation of the rest of the books of Scripture leading up to that point. We're going to see the same thing today in Acts chapter 2. And as we do, we're going to see that what people typically think about the day of Pentecost and the launch of the New Testament church, most of that is not exactly biblically sound. What, in fact, people have usually have in their mind, and I think I was one of those people at one point that had the idea that the day of Pentecost came, it's a new start, it's a new fresh day, it's a new church, it's a new everything, and that the day of Pentecost was this brand new thing, when in reality we're going to see that Pentecost is a very, very, very old thing, and that what was new was a new a realignment, an emphasis, a clarity of what had been given many, many years before. So before we get into that study, though, we want to begin with a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can come into your presence and that you promise to give us wisdom and understanding. So, Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit who inspired the book now be our instructor and guide as we try to understand your book and to make application in our lives today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Picking right up where Acts chapter 1 leaves off, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Now, that verse alone indicates something that was opposite than my, than my previous assumption. My assumption had been that everyone had been meeting in the upper room, the day of Pentecost came, and that means that the Holy Spirit was poured out, this powerful manifestation of the gift of tongues, which we've had a message about that particularly already, but this massive event happened, and 3,000 people baptized in one day, and going forward, they came up with a name to refer to that event and called it Pentecost, right? That it was just another day, but then the Holy Spirit came in, really changed things around, and they looked back and they called it Pentecost. What I want to demonstrate for you today is that Pentecost was happening long before this particular event. If you notice, again, look at the language. When the day of Pentecost had fully come as though it was on schedule and it arrived on time, just as it always did. One fascinating thing is that the day of Pentecost was not just a New Testament phenomenon. In fact, it's an Old Testament phenomenon, a very, very old thing. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and find the roots of the day of Pentecost deep embedded in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 23. In those first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... It has been said that Leviticus chapter 23 is the most thorough prophecy of every phase of Christ's ministry for us in the entire Bible. Now, I know the longest time prophecy is Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 2 covers the entire history of the world. But for looking at the ministry of Jesus in its entirety, every aspect, every phase, you can't beat Leviticus 23. And let's see why that is. Let's start with verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. So he sets out these feasts 
Of course, the Sabbath is the weekly feast. It's not part of the ceremonial law, but the Sabbath becomes the template for how you keep the other feasts. You're supposed to have these holy convocations, these special holy days. And each one is at their appointed time. Look at verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Now, that's going to be important. You couldn't just say, hey, we're going to throw a feast to the Lord and make up a special holiday. The Lord said, these are my feasts, and he names them. He puts them in sequence, and he says, you're going to keep them at the appointed time. There was a schedule or a calendar for these feasts to be kept. The first one in their, the Hebrew economy, and you have to imagine the Hebrew economy, well, sort of like we have now, there are, for instance, when you think of Thanksgiving, you automatically have some colors come to mind, right? And I promise it's not red, white, and blue right? It's orange and brown and those earth tones. It's harvest kind of colors. And you might even get a taste in your mouth. You have a, you're geared up for this time. But again, in July, when you have the 4th of July, you think of different weather, you have different colors, different foods, different things come to mind. And our, you know, secular holidays kind of work that way. You know, you have all the way around the calendar, you have each one kind of planted out. God had special holy days or convocations coming together gatherings of all the people that he called the feasts of the lord and they were scheduled around the year at their appointed times and the first of them was the passover and he goes on to explain verse five on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the lord's passover and of course if you're even even a, a superficial survey of old testament history you will call the passover that they were to keep was a memorial of that event he had done in the past where they were in bondage in Egypt and the Lord brought them out. And on the night of their deliverance, they were supposed to slay a lamb and put that over the doorpost, right? And the the destroying angel would pass over those homes that were covered by the blood and would strike only those who were not covered by the blood. And this became a perpetual feast. It was the beginning of their of their season, of their year, their economy, if you will, this Passover feast. And along with it, verse 6, and on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So basically you have this Passover, and then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the two go together as this one feast. Now, all of these feasts, I'll just go ahead and cut to the chase here, every one of these feasts, as we mentioned, is a forecast or a foretelling, a prediction of Jesus' ministry for the lost. Okay? Every one of these points forward to some aspect of Jesus' life, ministry, sacrifice, and ministry on our behalf. For instance, here in the book of Leviticus chapter 23, when it talks about the Passover, of course, that lamb that was slain that covers the doorpost points forward to whom? Jesus Christ, right? And the New Testament bears that out. You can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 where the Apostle Paul declares that Christ, our Passover, has been slain. Basically, Jesus was that Passover lamb that all those lambs typified or symbolized, represented, pointing forward. But Jesus came and was the fulfillment of those things and shed his actual blood. And thus, by our, on our, the doorpost of our heart, we can have his shed blood covering us, right? Very clearly. Now, let's go to the next feast, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits 
of your harvest to the priest. And this feast was known as first fruits. Because what they were supposed to do, as it says right there, bring a sample or a little bit of the first heads of grain that come up, bring them to the priest, and what is he supposed to do with them? Verse 11. He shall, what's that word? Wave. W-A-V-E, very simple. Wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. So he's supposed to take a sample of the harvest and wave it in front of the Lord... And that's the feast, okay? The feast of first fruits. These are the first fruits of grain of harvest that are coming from the earth. And notice when he was supposed to do this. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And notice it's the day after the Sabbath of the Passover and unleavened bread week, right? So you have that first ceremony, and then at ends on Sabbath, and then the very next day, the day after the Sabbath, which of course is the first day of the week, the seventh day is the Sabbath. The first day of the week, Sunday, they were supposed to have this ceremony where the first fruits were waved. The waved sheaf was presented before the Lord. Now, interestingly, the New Testament gives us, shows us how this was fulfilled by Jesus Christ as well. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul invokes this language to describe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. Scripture reads, But now Christ is what? Risen from the dead and has become the what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ's resurrection, which of course happened the day after the Sabbath of Passover week, was the first fruits of those who will be resurrected at the end. Now, a fascinating sideline. It's not called, uh, you know, it's first fruits, plural. It's not the first fruit. You don't take a single stalk of grain and pinch it between your fingers and wave it, right? You take a whole bundle, a sheaf, a sample of a great harvest to come, and you wave it before the Lord. Did you know, of course you knew, I assume that everyone knows every biblical fact, Okay, But just in case you didn't, Jesus Christ's resurrection, he did not resurrect all by himself. Did you know that others were raised to life when Jesus resurrected? Let's make sure we know that from our Bibles. Matthew chapter 27. Now we're still making home base in Leviticus 23, but for right now, venture over to Matthew 27. And we're going to go to verse 50. And we'll pick up right at the very expiration of the life of Christ when he died on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Yielding up your spirit is a euphemism for what? Death. You die, right? You you breathe your last and he dies. Verse 51. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now we're all well aware of that, likely. And the earth quaked, well aware of that, likely. And the rocks split, well aware of that, likely. But then verse 52, and the what? Graves were opened and many... Now this is, I want to be clear, look what the language is saying, what it's not saying. It does not say that many saints came to life. 
it says that the bodies of the many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It does not say they were raised to life, that the saints themselves, but the bodies themselves were exhumed from their tombs because of this earthquake, the rock split, and the graves are now opened, and these bodies are out. At the death of Jesus, I want to be clear, the death of Jesus didn't raise anyone. Paul makes this argument, you can study it out for yourself, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Even if Jesus Christ had died, but never resurrected, we'd still be in our sins. We have no hope. The hope is not just in Jesus' death, but it's his continued life at the resurrection that gives us hope. That was Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, and we see that bear out here in Matthew 27. Again, verse 52, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And notice this, verse 53, And coming out of the graves, when? After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus Christ resurrects, and along with that resurrection, by the power of that resurrection, other people, many saints who had been previously dead, were now alive and went as a living testimony all throughout Jerusalem. So you might not have seen Jesus Christ resurrect, but you might have seen this other person as a living witness to the power of his resurrection. And this happens on the day after the Sabbath, the Passover, that Jesus was slain. It's fascinating. Jesus is our first fruits, and along with him, the wave sheaf were raised as evidence of the power of his resurrection. So Leviticus 23, we've seen the Passover where Jesus dies. We see the first fruits where Jesus resurrects. And so now we go to the third feast. Please go to, back to Leviticus 23. The third feast in the Hebrew economy finds its fulfillment. Now we expect to find a fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and lo and behold, we do. Now we're going to go down to verse 15, Leviticus 23. Now notice this carefully. And you shall, what's that word? Count. Okay, this is an arithmetic. This is a math assignment. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. So the starting point is the day after the Sabbath, that day that Jesus Christ was raised. From the day you brought the wave sheaf of the wave offering, you remember that day, right? Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Now you have a Sabbath how many days? Every seven days, right? So if you have seven weeks or seven Sabbaths, seven sets of seven, seven times seven is what? Thank you. Good. If we got in like 26, oh, we'd had a whole, a whole different, you know. But seven times seven is 49, right? So you have 49 days. You're supposed to count. Okay, here's one week. Here's another week. And you go to seven weeks. On that 49th week, 49th day, I'm sorry, at the end of the seven weeks, completes that cycle. And so the next day you have a celebration of the passing of those seven weeks. So we see now verse 16. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So you're to offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And it, it's based on an arithmetic calculation from the day after Passover, when Christ was raised on that first day of the week, you count seven weeks or 49 days, and the next day is another feast of the Lord on the 50th day. Now, a little interesting linguistic thing is that anytime something starts with a five, there's a, there's a prefix for that in English. For instance, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch, right? The Pentateuch, because it's five, right, in the number. So what would you call, if it's seven weeks, that 50th day is called Pentecost. 
okay? It's the feast of that 50th day. And if you go back now to Acts chapter 2, it makes complete sense why all those people were there, all those Jews. Notice they're not just people from every which way that just happen to be in town. They're there for a specific purpose. They're all Jews, and they're all in town for this particular event. Now we go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they were peered to them, divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now again, we have ha- already had an entire message about the gift of, of tongues, and I encourage you to go listen to it if you haven't already. We don't have time for it now. But look what verse 5 says. And there dwelling in Jerusalem, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, what kind of people? Jews, devout men, and where were they from? From every nation under heaven. Why were they dwelling in Jerusalem if they're from every nation? They have come there for that feast of Pentecost. This is simply, Pentecost is this term for the feast of weeks. It's the third feast in the cycle of feasts, annual feasts that the Jews were supposed to keep. And they were all in town for that meeting. This is, this, we, I want to disabuse your mind if you happen to have the same thing that I had, that this great event happened and later they look back and they say, we should call it something. Let's come up with a Pentecost. No, 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 no. Pentecost have been keeping we keep for centuries. This was a particularly special one because it was the one that fulfilled all the types leading up to it. Okay? Now, by the way, you see that Jesus understood this well. Look at Acts chapter 1. Let me show you something fascinating. We'll just start with verse 1, the introduction of the book of Acts, where Luke says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after, through, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the, the apostles whom he had chosen. And I like verse 3. Watch this. Works with Matthew 27 very beautifully. To whom, that is to the apostles, he also presented what? himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Now, if I wanted to demonstrate to you that I had raised from the dead, I would just show you me, right? Hi, here I am. But Christ didn't just have himself, but he also had with him many infallible proofs. Not only is my resurrection powerful enough to raise me up, but look, here's a sample of what it can do for others, right? This is exactly what Matthew chapter 27 says. Others were raised from the dead and went and presented themselves as proof, as evidence, as a witness to Christ's resurrection. Anyway, verse 3 continues. Being seen by them during how long? Forty days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. If you think about that, why did Jesus, after his resurrection, come back and spend some time with his disciples? Now, the fact that he spent some time with them makes sense they had to relearn some lessons they were they were completely off on on the crucifixion weekend they were completely undone as though it hadn't been foretold right christ had to now recalibrate their thinking and teach them give them a bible study for just over a month for 40 days he spends with them but why did he spend 40 days why not uh six months why not another three and a half years really get them grounded why just this amount of time is it possible that christ operates on a calendar that exactly as the scriptures had foretold 
just as with his birth and his life and his ministry and his death and his resurrection, now his ascension was on a calendar, a schedule, if you will. And he spends 40 days with him. And let's continue on what he says here. We'll continue verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Now that kind of goes a corner to our thinking. We think of the end of the book of Matthew, and Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. And here he says, Don't go. Don't go yet. Right? The first thing you're supposed to do is wait where? What are they waiting for? But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with what? And when would that happen? According to this text, not many days from now. Okay? So we're sitting at 40 days. And he's like, now you guys wait here. I'm going to leave, but you don't leave yet. You stay put right here in Jerusalem and you wait. And what is it you're waiting for? The promise of the Holy Spirit, which you've heard talked about all the way back from John. Now this is his turn to kind of come. I'm going to transition. He's going to transition here. So you wait here, and it's going to occur. And he doesn't say not many weeks from now, not many months from now, but not many days. So we're at 40 days, and he's looking to the future. He's like, stay put for in just a few days, just a short time, the Holy Spirit will be sent. And of course, verse 6, then they ask him when they come together, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I can imagine his heart sunk. It's like, oh, my word, you've got to listen to me, right? We need to clarify this. And look at Jesus' response. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. By the way, apparently there's a time and season for Christ's return as well. We don't know it. But there is a calendar that the Lord operates by. But you, don't worry about that, he said. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So he basically says, you're going to start in Jerusalem, wait for the promise, in just a few days that's coming. Then the Holy Spirit's going to come, and what it's going to do, and notice it doesn't say, and you will be given the gift of tongues. No. It just says, you'll be given power to be witnesses to me. You're going to be going forth boldly preaching the word, starting in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Thus, when we have, in chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, we understand that the day of Pentecost is simply the same feast they've been keeping for hundreds of years, and now it has fully come. And in the, in the mind of Christ, this is a schedule that you're supposed to keep, just like in Galatians, just for the beginning of his ministry, in fact, his birth. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. Right? There was a fullness of time. There's a schedule all throughout his ministry. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Yet at the end, he said, my time, my hour has come. Right? He understands he's on a schedule. And here Jesus takes off exactly what he knows what's coming because he understands the scriptures. And he's trying to get them to rely on a thus saith the Lord. Now, let's continue on. Peter finally understands this. And after the, the crowd doesn't understand, and by the way, you recall verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. And why were they confused? Not because they didn't understand the language, but precisely because they did understand the language. That was confusing to them. If you go to a crowd that has you know, 20 different countries represented, you would expect to not understand what people are saying. But when they could understand, that arrested their attention. They're like, how is this possible? 
And of course, uh, it lists them all out there. But Peter, chapter, 14, uh, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 14, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this, and notice what he launches into now, is a Bible study. For this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he starts quoting Old Testament scripture to say, what you're seeing now is simply a fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures we've had all along. So he quotes from Joel. Now go down to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. By the way, he's not just talking about something that happened a long time ago. This has only been 50 days ago, two months less, less than two months, when Jesus was crucified. He's like, you guys are all well aware of the stuff Jesus did. You were there for it. Him, verse 23, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. You know, this is how he opens his message and that's how he closes it. He has one theme. The Jesus who you killed is actually God himself and is at the right hand of the Father even now. Friends, you killed your own Messiah is the burden of his message. Notice also, the burden of his message is not the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost is not about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a signal and sign that Jesus Christ is now accepted into the Father's uh, uh, administration in heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father. Peter makes this clear as we continue. Notice this again, verse 23. Being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So even at this point, the resurrection of Jesus is a known quantity. So that's not even the present truth yet. The fact that Jesus has risen from the dead is not the present truth of the day of Pentecost. For David, now he goes back to the Old Testament scriptures here. He goes to the book of Psalms. For David says concerning him, that is Jesus Christ. And as you read through this passage, you could imagine that it would be confusing because David writes a psalm about the Messiah in first person. So it can sound like he's talking about himself. Because watch as the language unfolds. For David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now you could imagine, that means, oh, that means David has been resurrected and has gone to heaven, correct? Well, we'll get to that. Peter understands that objection and he comes back to it. Verse 28, you have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So you could very much get the picture, if you read this in first person from David, that David would die, but would not stay in the grave, but would be resurrected and go into the presence of the Father. Right? But look how Peter makes sure that that's not the interpretation you take away. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak free to you, freely to you of the patriarch David. Can we just talk like people here? Let me tell you about David. Great guy, wonderful king. But here's what you need to know about him for today. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's like, let me tell you the truth. He died, 
He stayed dead. He's buried. And if you want, we can take a field trip and go look at his tomb. He is dead. This is not David that he's talking about. It's someone else, namely Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet, so he's speaking prophetically, David was, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to, his, to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, that is Jesus Christ sitting on his throne, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, as our scripture reading said, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Okay, now again, Christ was raised and went around for 40 days, plus those others were raised, right? And they went all throughout Jerusalem. So he said, friends, we have seen, you were there for first fruits, that's the last time we were all together. And there were some special guests with us, coming from the grave. And you've all witnessed to this. So even the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not present truth at this point. That's old news. But it goes on. Therefore, verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had talked about in Acts chapter 1, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So the things that you've seen and heard today, the speaking in tongues, the flame of fire, this great revival, okay, this is the sign and seal that Jesus Christ is now ascended into heaven, is at the right hand of God, and has received the authority to send forth the Holy Spirit. What you see on earth is simply the manifestation, the receipt of a transaction that happened in heaven. Okay? Now, for David, and he makes this patently clear, this is a powerful passage, by the way, about the state of the dead. David, dead, buried, his tomb's with us today, and just in case you're thinking, yes, but his soul went to heaven, look at verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Okay, <laughs> that is spot on on the nose, right? But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. Who David is talking about is Jesus Christ, who's going to sit at the right hand of God the Father in the throne of heaven. So he comes to his punchline. By the way, his sermon's almost done. Here we are, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly and I love, why do they know it assuredly? Because the scripture said so. Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That is the appeal, that's the punchline of the day of Pentecost sermon. It's not about the Holy Spirit or music or, or faith healings or any of the other stuff that typically goes with, along with Pentecost that we think of. It was a message, a Bible-based message about Jesus Christ that he's now present truth at the right hand of the father in the throne of heaven and it says in verse 37 when they heard this they were cut to the heart and they said to peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do and of course they repented and they believed and three thousand were added to them that day and the new testament church was launched but friends don't see this as a brand new out of the box thing this is simply the culmination of all that had gone before now it's just the present truth that Jesus is no longer here. He's up there. And the, the evidence of his transition to heaven is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here on the earth. Okay? Now the title of today's message is The Other Side of Pentecost. There's a whole second side to Pentecost that we typically don't see referenced, at least in, in 
presentations that I've heard. We talk about all the things we've just done, how the Holy Spirit came down from heaven, and everything happened on earth. All the different people were from different nations, and they were there, and they heard this message, and they were converted, and the church grew, and it's all happening down here on the earth. But the message that Peter was preaching is that Jesus Christ is now where? In heaven. And the Bible, fascinatingly enough, records the same event, the day of Pentecost, but not from earth perspective, but from the other side, from heaven's perspective. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to see the identical event that happened on the day of Pentecost on earth now described from heaven's perspective. Chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, starting with verse 1. After these things I looked, the apostle John writes, and behold, a door standing open where? In heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So John sees a door open in heaven and a voice opens and invites him up. And of course, anytime you see a door open in heaven and a voice invites you up, go. Immediately, verse 2, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And we could go through the rest of chapter 4, and we'd find around the throne were these four living creatures, and the 24 thrones of the 24 elders were there, all represented, yet the Father. And notice this also, verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, And you think, oh, that's revelation language. I'll never know what that means. But it tells us. Which are the seven, what? Spirits of God. Now, you can search high and low in the book of Revelation. You will not find the term Holy Spirit anywhere there. But you do see the Father, the Son, and the seven spirits. Of course, seven is a symbolic number representing completion and godhood and divinity. It's kind of his sign and seal. He rests on the seventh day. That's That's his thing. And here we have the seven spirits of God. And where are they located? I want to really hone in on this. Where are they located in verse 5 of chapter 4? Apparently I've been doing too much talking. You're not used to talking. That's okay. Where are they located? Seven lamps of fire were burning where? Before the throne. So God the Father sitting on the throne. By the way, which is what you see in the sanctuary, right? In the most holy place you have the throne. And then in the holy place right in front of it you see the seven lamps burning. But the seven lamps represent the Holy Spirit and his work for people. And we're going to see that in just a minute. Now, continues on. What are these creatures, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, what are they praising the Lord for in chapter 4? Notice verse 8. They sing this song, holy, holy, holy. Again, it's interesting. When they praise the Lord, they always sing holy. Not holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. Just interesting. Lord God Almighty, and what are they praising him for here? Who was and is and is to come. So he's the one truly infinite eternal creature, the only being in all the universe who was and is and is to come. So they're praising him for that. Now we go on, verse 11. What's the second thing they're praising him for? You are, what's that word? Worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For what reason? For you did what? created all things and by your will they exist and were created notice carefully that we praise the father for creation but it doesn't say he executed the creation it says by his will they were created 
course, what member of the Godhead actually executed the Father's will in the creation of the world? Jesus Christ, right? But that's the closest thing we find to a reference to Jesus at all in Revelation chapter 4. You have the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, the four living creatures, the 24 elders. They're singing songs about how he is eternal and how he creates all things. That's the end of the chapter. There are two things conspicuously absent in Revelation 4. Number one, it's any reference to Jesus Christ. He's not there at all. I mean, you have the holy, holy, holy refers. There might be a third person there somewhere, but you only see the Father on the throne and the Spirit before the throne. That's it. Okay? You also have by your will they are created. It means someone else executed the will, but there's no direct mention of Jesus Christ in Revelation 4 at all. The second thing that's conspicuously absent is there's no praise for the, for the second great work of God, which is redemption. You see, Lord, you created all things, but that's it. No mention of salvation at all. Now we go to chapter 5. This sets the stage for chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So God the Father is sitting on his throne, and he has a sealed document in his hand, a scroll. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Now, pause right here. Had they just sung a song to God the Father because he's worthy of something? Yes. But it was for two things. For his eternal nature and for his work of creation. But apparently this document is not about his eternality or his creative ability this document deals with redemption and now the question is asked who is worthy to open and you would imagine this is a rhetorical question it's going to be god the father right he'll just slice open those seven seals and read that document to us and verse three and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it so this whole thing builds and builds and they're singing these praise songs and God the Father brings out this scroll. And then no one can open it. And apparently something very, very important because look at John's reaction. Verse 4. So I did what? Wept. How much? Much, it says. The Greek word that this English doesn't do it you know, there's, there's several different words for crying. and it's, it's, This is not like sniffling or a little alligator tears. This is all-out wailing. He just falls, he's completely undone. He just falls apart. So I wept much because no one was found, and here's that word again, worthy to open the scroll, open and read the scroll, or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not, what? Weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's interesting, the reference here, the root of whom? David. The same David that wrote the Psalms that Peter was preaching from on his day of Pentecost sermon, where David points forward to Jesus who's going to sit at the right hand of God. Now it's the root of David has prevailed, which is a reference to victory, right? He's won, he's triumphed, has prevailed, to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. There's one who can do it. And it's not God the Father. And it's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the four living creatures. not the 24 elders. There's only one. 
And who did he see in verse 6? And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a what? Lamb. And you get the imagery right back to Passover. That lamb that was shed its blood stood a lamb as though it had been, past tense, what? Slain. So the lamb is there, alive and well, but it has the evidence that at one time it has been slain. It has scars. Yes? And notice more symbolic language. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. But this time, notice where their location is. Sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. He doesn't ask for it. He comes and takes it like like it's his. Like he has a right to it. Verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a what? New song. The other song was about the eternal quality of God and the creative ability of God. But now it says a new song. You are, what's our word? Worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For what reason? You were slain. Was God the Father slain for our sins? No. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Right? So God the Father, in the same way that he created the world, did it through Jesus Christ. The same way now he saves sinners, he does it through Jesus Christ. So until Jesus Christ comes back victorious, nothing goes forward. It's only Jesus that can make the process of redemption go. But Jesus comes in, and now they're singing a song about redemption, because that's the role that Jesus Christ did. Now, what we see here again is not only the earthly perspective in Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost, but what you see is the heavenly perspective, where Jesus wasn't there, Jesus enters the room, And when Jesus comes, he sends out the Holy Spirit sent into all the earth, which makes us pick up perfectly again in Acts chapter 2 when they saw the Holy Spirit came from heaven and fills the room, right? This is a seamless transition between heaven and earth, the other side of Pentecost. I can't think of any better description of this combined of these two events than the final words in that great book, the desire of ages. I will just read you a little bit. Notice the combination of these two, Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost and heaven's perspective from Revelation 4 and 5. Okay, listen carefully. It's page 833, desire of ages. The disciples no longer had any distrust of the future. They knew that Jesus was in heaven and that his sympathies were with them still. Isn't it nice to have a friend in high places? Right? Man, if I had to deal with some, some big bureaucratic, some sort of big corporation or some governmental agency or something, it would be really nice to be friends with the guy who makes the decision, right? If you have a cousin who's on the... Oh, that's good, right? If you have a neighbor, oh, that's good. I got a friend in there, right? Jesus Christ is that way with us. In our own, we are... We are completely done for in the presence of God the Father, but Jesus Christ is our advocate. We have a friend in high places. They knew that Jesus was in heaven and his sympathies were with them still. They knew that they had a friend at the throne of God and they were eager to present their request to the Father in the name of Jesus. In solemn awe, they bowed in prayer, 
repeating the assurance, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive, then your joy may be full. They extended the hand of faith higher and higher with a mighty argument. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And Pentecost brought them fullness of joy in the presence of the Comforter, even as Christ had promised. So just as Jesus said, it's expedient that I go away, the Comforter will be sent. This is exactly what happened. The promise was fulfilled, and the disciples saw, aha, the same Jesus we saw here is up there. And we have a friend at the throne of God. Now, the transition to the heavenly perspective as we bring this to a close. All heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. And that's what you see in Revelation 4. You have everything there. In fact, the hundreds of thousands of angels, you know, millions of angels, they're all there. All heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. As he ascended, he led the way, and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. The heavenly host, with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song, attended the joyous train. And when Jesus, you can see it in, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus goes up into heaven, they strain their eyes, but he's hidden by a cloud, right? And what's that cloud made up of? Angels. A cloud of angels comes. And I'm guessing those two who stayed with the disciples would rather be in the cloud. But they have to stick with these guys who are straining, right? Because they can't see into heaven, right? But a sign is given that Christ is received back into heaven when the Holy Spirit is poured out. And they have to say, look, the same Jesus that went up, in the same way, he's coming back down. But for right now, you go to work. He's going to go to work up there. You go to work down here. Someday you'll see him again. Goes on. Again, so the heavenly hosts with shouts of acclamation and praise and celestial song attend the joyous train. So there's Jesus the representatives of the wave sheep that have risen with him in his resurrection, and all the angel hosts that want to gather around that cloud that take them from earth to heaven. You notice the transition here as he ascends. They're excited and they start singing, and they cry out to the gatekeepers of heaven. Watch what happens. As they drew near to the city of God, the challenge is given by the escorting angels, the ones who are taking Christ, right? And they quote, appropriately enough, from the book of Psalms. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Joyfully, the waiting sentinels respond. So now we have those angels posted to keep the door, right? Wait, joyfully, the waiting sentinels respond, Who is this King of glory? This they say, not because they know not who he is, but because they would hear the answer of exalted praise. They just wanted to hear it, right? So they answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Notice he's coming back as a conquering, victorious king. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Again the challenge is heard. Who is this king of glory? For the angels never weary of hearing his name exalted. The escorting angels make reply. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. So they have this fascinating, based on the book of Psalms, banter back and forth between the escorting angels and the guardian angels. As they're coming to the gates, they say, open the door. Who is it? It's the king of glory. Who is it? It's the king of... And they just want to, And they're building up this anthem of praise. It's fascinating. Then the portals of the city of God are opened wide and the angelic throngs sweep through the gates amid a burst of rapturous music. 
and see if this doesn't sound like Revelation 4. There is the throne, and around it the rainbow of promise. There are cherubim and seraphim, which is a reference to the four living creatures. The commanders of the angel hosts, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds are assembled, which seems to be a reference to the 24 elders. The heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representatives of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion are all there to welcome the Redeemer. They are eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king. And if you recall from Job chapter 1, the sons of God had a day when they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, and the Lord asked, where do you come from? And Satan says, I come from the earth, implying that these other ones come from other places. Right? Here they're all assembled, all the host of the universe. And they're ready, they're eager to welcome Jesus home. But he waves them back. Not yet. So they're like... And he's like, calm down, just a minute. I need to have a talk with my father. He cannot now receive his coronet of glory in the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. Now we've transitioned to Revelation 5, right? He points to his wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. He lifts his hands, bearing the print of nails. He points to the tokens of his triumph. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of the great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. He approaches the Father with whom there is joy over one sinner that repents, who rejoices over one with singing. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. Again, notice the overcoming by Satan was not a guarantee, but if it should happen, they had a plan ready to go, called the plan of redemption, not just the plan of destruction. They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. This pledge Christ has fulfilled. When upon the cross he cried out, It is finished! He addressed the Father. You ever think about what was Jesus saying was finished? That particular sacrifice that had been covenanted for foundation, before the foundation of the earth. He addressed the Father. The compact had been fully carried out. Now he declares, Father, it is finished. I have done thy will, O my God. I have completed the work of redemption. If thy justice is satisfied, I will. So Christ finally says what he wants. Remember, everything was not my will but the Father's. But now he says, now that the job is done, I have one request. I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Think about it. He comes back, he has victorious, and he has one request. Can I bring them here with me too? You know, we must disabuse our minds of this picture that God's looking for every little detail to keep us out. Friends, he wants you in. That's the whole point. The voice of God is heard proclaiming that justice is satisfied. Satan is vanquished. Christ's toiling, struggling ones on earth are accepted in the beloved. Before the heavenly angels and the representatives of unfallen worlds, they are declared justified. Where he is, there his church shall be. And again, quoting from Psalm, this time 85, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The Father's arms encircle His Son. And the word is given, Let all the angels of God 
worship him. Friends, the power of Pentecost was not just the speaking in tongues and the flames of fire and the great rushing wind. The power is the fact, the undeniable, extremely clear fact that we as sinners have a friend at the right hand of God. That we have an advocate with the Father that if we should sin, we can confess our sins and He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. The one thing that He wants is to have us there. This is what the day of Pentecost is all about. And this isn't a new concept. It's not like in the Old Testament God wanted to keep us out, but now we have Jesus. Friends, this has been the compact from the foundation of the world. The New Testament church is not a new church at all. It's simply the fulfillment of what it was supposed to be all along. And we have a friend in high places, in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I want to go with him where he is. Right? That was the prayer of his heart. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me may be here with me where I am. And we have that opportunity. And did you notice the change in the disciples? From Acts chapter 2 on, they had this clear understanding of Bible truth and present truth of the ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, and they preached the word with boldness. No longer this equivocating, no longer this hemming and hawing around. They know the truth and they preach it with all their might because they have an understanding of of where Jesus is presently. This should be the same for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary now, in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, soon to come again. And he's looking for people on the earth who, like the disciples, will preach the word of God with boldness. Sure, you might have an occupation, but your job in this world, spiritually speaking, is to win souls to Christ so that we can take people home and have a great harvest that Christ said was coming. I personally want to be a part of it, and I don't want to go there alone. I want to take people with us. This is the purpose of the day of Pentecost, is to be a witness for Jesus Christ in this earth. Friends, we have a friend in high places, and there are people out there who don't know about it. We have to be the messengers. We are going to be his witnesses, and Jesus is going to have a great harvest. So that when we get to the courts of heaven, perhaps this hymn, hymn number 202, will be the hymn that we sing, Hail Him, the King of Glory. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.